I'm Richard Hurley, the BMJ's Features and Debates Editor. Our latest head-to-head asks, should Google offer an online screening test for depression? This follows Google's announcement that when someone searches for a term like, I am depressed, in the US, it will offer them a questionnaire to measure depression severity and then offer an interpretation of the results. The initiative is supported by the US patient advocacy organisation, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Today I'm speaking to some of the authors of the Head to Head. Ken Duckworth is the medical director for NAMI, and Simon Gilbody is a psychiatry professor at the University of York. Ken, what are Google and NAMI proposing exactly, and why are they doing it now? Uh, the, um, the, the conversation uh, between Google and NAMI you know, has been an ongoing one. I think there's a shared interest uh, to see if there's a way uh, that depression assessment tools can become more ubiquitous. So when people were searching, am I depressed in the past, they would get many uh, random tools. The PHQ-9 is not new. It's open source, and it's easily found uh, on the Internet. And the goal uh, at NAMI was, after a person got their score, uh, they would get thoughtfully written uh, materials, where to go for help, the number for the United States National Suicide Hotline, uh, if needed, and then how to find help if you have health insurance, if you don't, uh, where you might seek services. So the thinking really was, uh, if we can create a common language, uh, everybody knows what 120 over 80 is, but yet we all struggle with depression, and at least here in the States, uh, many professionals don't measure in depression. So I think one of the other goals was to make sure that the people who are getting help and the people doing the help were sharing the same language. So that was the thinking behind uh, the endeavor. And... Uh, with the suicide rate in America increasing dramatically, it's hard to argue that what we were doing was working. Obviously, this is not going to solve the problem. This is a very complex issue. Uh, but we thought this might be a, a useful endeavor. Simon, uh, for readers who aren't aware, could you maybe just explain what the PHQ-9 test is? How, what is it? How is it usually used? Okay, the PHQ-9 test is a, is a test that's been around for, for quite a few years now and um, we've done some work looking at the, um, the performance characteristics of that test and um, it's, it's a questionnaire that's framed around some of the cardinal symptoms of depression that form the basis of one of the important diagnostic systems whereby we, we diagnose depression and it's got nine items and you um, complete the items, one of the items asks about risk and suicidal ideation and you um, uh, create a score out of 27 and we've got some some good benchmarks that allow us to understand when people have got a little bit of depression more substantial depression and quite severe levels of depression so as a, a measure of depression severity ken is quite correct that it's um, it's good it's a good metric and it's useful and it stacks up quite well um, one of the concerns that i have about the phq9 is that just using a one-off score a race score picks up people with with, um, levels of depression but also people who might have um, transient levels of psychological distress often in response to, um, to, to difficult life circumstances and it also creates 
false negatives. So it's going to tell people that they're not depressed when, in fact, that might be the case. So it's, it, when it's used as a screening test, it's an imperfect test, just like all tests. Ken, what do you say to all of that? Is Simon right to be concerned? You know, I think that there are no perfect tests. I absolutely agree there are false positives, false negatives. The meta purpose of this was to create a situation where people have more education about the possibility that they may be depressed. In the States, uh, it's sometimes difficult to access mental health treatment. Some people report, you know, waiting lines in primary care offices and emergency rooms. And so one of the thoughts about this was to give people better information so that when they do get into care, they can say, well, I scored a 10, um, might be my thyroid, could you take a look at it? Um, there's no representation that this is a, a perfect test or that this is a diagnostic test. Uh, NAMI believes that educated people do better in general and that um, the more information you have, the more likely you are uh, to get good help. And so this is a concern that the NAMI membership frequently raises. You know, they feel like they can't speak the clinical language. And so one of the advantages of this model was people could walk in with a number. Well, you know, I scored a 17. I know that's a noteworthy score. You know, I have bipolar disorder, doc, so this might be part of my, you know, larger mood state. The goal is to just increase educational awareness. But Simon is right. The test can give false positives and false negatives, and the test is ubiquitous on the Internet now. So it's not like uh, it doesn't exist as a process. But, you know, when people were Googling depression in the past, they could come upon any number of things. We see this as a conversation starter uh, in a country that, you know, is really losing the battle of suicide. And uh, we just thought it might be helpful to try upping the game of the public in terms of their understanding of it. But it is definitely not diagnostic. It doesn't replace a clinician. Uh, but at times, uh, it can be hard to find a clinician, and information, I, we believe, can be helpful. Simon, ed- education, awareness raising, what's not to like about that? Yeah, I feel a little bit like the bad guy in the room here, because Ken paints a very plausible picture. He tells a very plausible story about depression being an important problem with important uh, impacts on the individual, high levels of suffering, high levels of population need. And, um, and this is a story that's often talked about with individual conditions when we make the case for screening for those disorders. And um, so I guess the perspective that I bring to this is the perspective that we use when we think about uh, screening programs. And um, Muir Gray famously said that all screening programs do harm and some do good as well. And when we try to think about the relative um, balance of benefits and harms of screening programs, um, we have to think quite clearly about that. And um, unfortunately, we have some useful criteria whereby we, we move from the very plausible and persuasive argument that Ken has made there about responding to unmet and individual need to working out whether that's a sensible thing to do to try and improve population health, to weigh up the benefits and the harms of um, of that approach. And um, fortunately, there are criteria that we can look at. Um, and the WHO came up with some criteria by which we should judge the value of any proposed screening program. 
And it's from that perspective, that population perspective, that I guess I would uh, encourage people to think about um, whether screening for depression is a good thing to do or whether the, the benefits do outweigh the harms. So the sorts of criteria that the WHO would encourage you to use would be to, um, to think about whether it's an important health problem and depression clearly is uh, an important health problem. They would encourage you to think very clearly about the, um, the utility of the test and um, we know that this is an imperfect test. And um, they would also encourage um, health systems prior to implementing a screening program to be very, very cautious about raising expectation of treatments and to ensure that before you implement a screening program that those resources will be in place in order to meet the demand that will be generated by that screening program. And I can't speak about the US, but I'll think about the UK and um, the, uh, the, the, the capacity of our healthcare system to respond to depression is, is finite. And one of the things that we've seen in recent years is, is the, the quite rapid expansion and increase in the prescription of psychotropic medications. And in many cases, that would be the right thing to do. But I think many people are concerned about the year-on-year -year increase in the prescription of antidepressants in particular. So I guess my primary concern is that the proposal from Google is um, superficially very attractive, um, but is unlikely to um, actually um, improve population health and is not evidence-based. So when we look at the evidence to see the benefits of, um, uh, 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 of screening programs for depression, um, the, the aspiration doesn't really translate into population or clinical improvements in mental health. Thank, thanks, Simon. Um, Ken, you describe this or argue that this is an, uh, a programme of educational awareness, but it is really a screening programme, isn't it? Well, it's a screening test, which you're free not to take. But I think the question is, you know, this is for motivated people looking for information on depression. I think the other question is, you know, what would you have them find? You know, so Google and NAMI work together to give them you know, a validated test, not perfect, and uh, certainly doesn't substitute for a clinical conversation. But um, our take was, you know, if you were motivated to find something on depression, that you would find something when you Googled it. And, uh, you know, we didn't want you to, uh, you know, find uh, something that was um, completely without a framework. This is the language here in the States that we speak in primary care, right? The PHQ-9 is 17. What does that mean? How do we work on it? The patients don't really know their own scores for the most part. And so the goal is to give them a tool that might be translatable. So I think the, the, the question that we would ask is, you know, when you used to Google uh, depression, what did you find? And is this an, isn't this an improvement to that? And thanks, Ken. Was there a, uh, has there been an assessment of the benefits and harm? What do you, what do you make of Simon's claim that there's there's no evidence that something like this can can be beneficial? Um, we understand that. You know, we we looked through that. We thought through the risks and benefits uh, of this, and we decided that the benefits giving people information in a way that the primary care doc in a 12 minute visit might understand. Uh, there's some evidence in the states that primary care doctors don't like to screen for depression. Um, they find it hard to navigate the mental health system, and it creates a, um, 
an acknowledged problem that they can't always solve in a short visit. So uh, we're not trying to uh, transform the healthcare system. We're trying to give people tools so that when they're Googling depression, they at least are exposed to a tool that you can find on many other places uh, on the web. And we don't purport to be uh, solving the problem of suicide, but we're trying to organize a shared language. Uh, many mental health practitioners in the states don't use any metrics at all for their care. The patient looks better. The patient feels better. I'm adding more meds because the patient doesn't seem quite right. And we're hoping to move the conversation towards a more objective transaction where the patients actually know uh, what the clinician's thinking. And if you have a shared metric, that may promote uh, something meaningful in terms of empowering the individual. Thanks, Ken. Simon, people are Googling uh, these things, the tests like this anyway, tests like the PHQ-9 anyway. Uh, is it better to have one test that, that everybody knows about to, to kind of create something standard there? Do you accept any, um, any of Ken's arguments on that point? Well, again, it's difficult to argue against Ken. It's um, a little bit about a, a little bit like arguing against motherhood and apple pie. You know, Ken makes a very plausible argument, and some of those claims may or may not be true. And um, I guess the basic point that I would make is we've seen in many diseases um, that similar arguments are proposed about increasing awareness and encouraging people to consult with their doctors and um, um, but we do know that unregulated screening programs um, do all sorts of things they generate um, demand sometimes that demand is supplier induced demand from um, the people who might manufacture treatments for depression you know, pharmaceutical products and um, there are concerns that unregulated um, screening programs also uh, ge generate um, um, demand on primary care services that um, where there isn't sufficient capacity to meet that demand. And this is a really important question. And it's it's so important that I, I don't think that Google are the best people to ask these questions. Thanks, Simon. And it's not quite a screening program. It's when people search for "Am I depressed?" It's handing them one tool and then a link to a series of resources. So I wouldn't call it a screening program, but it does organize uh, from the chaos of prior Google searches, am I depressed? Mm -hmm. um, it does organize information uh, in a more streamlined way. Simon, the question to, that I would have for you, and I do, I respect your opinion, and I see the, the problems that could be generated. You know, what would you have people find if they Googled depression, am I depressed? Like what would you prefer instead of handing them this tool, which is only a tool and it is an imperfect tool? What, what, what do you think would be a better alternative? Am I depressed? Because you can certainly Google how to kill yourself, right? I mean, there, there are all sorts of uh, unfortunate things on the Internet. So this is one of the questions that the Google people had is, you know, when you Google depression, you know, what do you get? And should we do better at organizing what you get? Yeah. 
Well, I think in, in this country, for example, we have bodies that take time to, uh, to think about the benefits and harms of different treatments or uh, information sources that might be proposed in the management of common conditions like depression. And um, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, our body NICE, produces um, very nice evidence summaries, but also um, very uh, elegant patient information resources and um, so my proposal would be that when people google depression that they might be uh, signposted to resources that have taken the time to consider the evidential basis of recommendations for treatments or the best ways in which depression might be managed and um, uh, so th th there are other resources that people might be signposted to um, I would be concerned about people being signposted to uh, an unsupervised administration of the PHQ-9 for the reasons that I've, I've just mentioned. So, you know, just so you know, um, when you, if you choose to take this test, uh, it then links to a series of pages that NAMI put together, uh, and it links to the National Institute of Mental Health, for instance, on uh, brain stimulation. The NIH has a whole workup on what's the role of transcranial magnetic stimulation, deep brain stimulation uh, is experimental. There's a comprehensive review of the psychotherapies which are common for depression. The medical problems that could result in a false positive. Um, so I think there's an effort on our part to not just give people a score if they take this test but rather to give them a score and some curated guidance on where they might go next. And uh, that was the intent of it, was not simply to, uh, you know, share this information, but rather to um, point people in directions. Many people in the States, for instance, don't know about the National Suicide Hotline, which is staffed 24 hours a day. Uh, many people don't know that if you have private health insurance, if you call the number on the back of your card, you can be, you know, found, a therapist can be found for you in relatively short order. So there are pieces in the American healthcare system which are complex to people. And uh, one of the goals of this was to demystify that. Thanks, Ken. Uh, another question I have for you is, how were patients involved in, in, in this initiative, in setting up this initiative? Virtually all of us at NAMI either have a family member with a major mental illness, my father had terrible bipolar disorder, uh, or they have a first-person lived experience of a mental illness. And uh, on the committee of people that collaborated on this, we both had multiple people who've loved people with major mood disorders and people who have lived actively with mood disorders. And uh, the, the consensus of the NAMI group, again, this might not be every position, that every person would take, but the concession, you know, the consensus of the NAMI group was information is power for people. And um, the fact is, if you can get inappropriate or unhelpful tools uh, or information on the Internet, why not give people a validated tool that other people might use? So I think the idea was, let's try to organize this in some more meaningful way for people who are actively looking for information. My thanks there to Simon Gilbody and Ken Duckworth debating whether this initiative represents a screening programme or an awareness campaign. As I mentioned at the end, the inclusion of service users in this is key to making sure that the right kind of questions are asked and information provided. 
David Gilbert is one such service user and has written a thoughtful commentary to accompany the debate. David, would you mind introducing yourself? Okay, so so I'm David Gilbert. Apart from other things, I have and continue to use mental health services. And I have a career that spanned about 20, 30 years in the field of service user and public engagement. These are all my own personal views and not um, not anybody else's or the organization I work for. So, by the way, I also am patient director at Sussex Musculoskeletal Partnership. But these views, are just to reiterate, are my own. What do you think of this idea then that Google is going to offer uh, the PHQ-9 diagnostic test for depression severity online to anyone who Googles it? Well, for me, it's really interesting and it set me thinking about a lot of other things. It, it put me back in mind of my own, my own distress, emotional, mental um, periods of distress through my life. And it made me think what I would want from a diagnosis. And it left me thinking before I came to back, back to thinking about um, the actual the actual tool itself is that for me diagnosis I've always been ambivalent to being given a diagnosis and on the one hand it seems to offer some some idea of uh, containment reassurance I know what's going on there's an explanation for my why my mind is is reeling out of control and when you're deep in distress anything that you latch on to can give you a hope and it may be a key out of the prison cell. On the other hand, um, like many other mental health service users, uh, labeling around a particular diagnosis, being a patient, having a disorder of some sort can, can feel very confining and trap you into sort of a bucket load of symptoms that don't really relate to what's going on in your life and what matters. So uh, could it be, could it, could any diagnosis actually be a, a key that, that locks you in rather than releases you? So I was trying to see it in that context and what would need to happen in order for something like this to be part of a solution rather than part of a trap. And um, perhaps you can say a little bit more then about um, uh, uh, how it, how it's been unhelpful to to have a diagnosis or to uh, could you go into in a general, bit more detail there? Yeah, or well, for in you? In general, yeah. Mm. Well, for me, I mean, in some in some ways, um, I, don't, I don't know whether I've been fortunate or unfortunate to escape a diagnosis. I had when I was going through the psychiatric system between twenty five and thirty one years old a while back. The nearest they got was, quote, atypical depression, atypical in being one word, not normal. And that wasn't hugely helpful um, for any reason whatsoever. It just made me think they didn't know what the hell was wrong with me. But at other times, I've been sort of almost labeled with a form of OCD. And that, for me, hasn't been hugely helpful but it is a form of thinking that I can say, oh, well, maybe it is a bit like that. But in general, what I sense from people I've worked with who have been labelled is that it can lead down the road towards what I'd call a biomedical model of seeing 
my distress is amenable to drug cure particularly and having worked a long time ago on the appropriate use of pharmaceuticals and regulatory policy I know that uh, pharmaceutical companies like to spread their wings a little bit and make one drug available for lots of different conditions and have some albeit indirect influence over widening diagnostic categories so I, th I, I fear that something like this draws people into the the more of um, more being MAW of, of a quite an avaricious industry that wants to sell drugs and that once you get into diagnostic labeling of this sort, it, it's all about the next step. Any diagnosis is followed by, okay, what now? What's next? Where do I go? Who do I go and see? And it feels like for this, the only route is towards a doctor if you score a particular score, significant scores on something like this. So in picking up the phone to the GP or being referred to a psychiatrist, I'm aware despite lots of other good stuff going on around talking treatments and all that, the realistic option, knowing many GPs, not my fantastic GP now, I'd like to say, um, but the, the GPs I've had before um, have all been um, triggering the prescription pad, really. Have you taken the PHQ-9 test? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I thought no. I, I I looked at it and I thought you know this isn't you know these these are these are really reasonable questions and I know that it's being developed with I, I believe it's being developed with service user albeit with a, with a with a funding education grant from Pfizer. I think they're great questions on the whole. There's nothing in there. And the question would be how how the hell you would do it, I'm not sure, but about, so what matters to you? What would be the outcomes of the treatment you want? What are the, what are the things that would give you back your happiness in life? So for me, one of the important things was, was going swimming and depression robbed me of being, having any confidence to get in the swimsuit ever again. I suppose what I'm looking for is a more rounded diagnosis in terms of the, the questions asked, but also the context of it. What What's important to you? What do we do next? What can we do together? But what's interesting is the questions you're suggesting are, are subjective questions which can't be scored in the same mm. way that the questions in the PHQ-9 can. You, don't, you can't get a score out of 18 at the end of it, which determines whether you're ill or not or how ill you are yeah i suppose that raises the question of ill or not and a binary opposition between being well and not and of course like any other condition there's a spectrum and i know we need to distinguish between people who have mild to moderate depression and whereby tendency for drugs not to work so well i suppose and where antidepressants or something like that or a different sort of therapy would kick in rather than going to six six weeks of CBT. So there is a need to distinguish around severity. I'm not sure it's an all or nothing, you're ill or you're not. I think that's one thing. Let's go back to, I mean, you said uh, the sort of default option is, is to give drugs and there's a concern that there's a, there's a uh, keenness to give people a diagnosis and then you can give them drugs. But there are other treatments uh, or other therapies available, aren't there? My, my issue is, I think, 
and I don't have the evidence for this, but my, my significant hunch is that the amount of money going on, on drug treatment and the amount of money going into these schemes is is incomparable. That, that actually, once you're diagnosed and labelled in this way, that this sort of screening tool gives, you are heading down to the GP. Once you are heading down to the GP or to the psychiatrist, then in some ways it's very difficult to open up the avenues back so that GPs understanding and awareness may be really good at the moment around sort of um, cognitive behavioral therapy and local counseling, less good about supporting me back to work or finding me welfare advice or finding me peer-to-peer support. And that I would guess on, on to some degree in psychiatry. My hunch also is that services in secondary care are under much more pressure these days and I would worry that um, with less time to do stuff then the default option will be will be the prescription pad and once you enter into a, a unit a psychiatric unit and you're you're either sectioned or you're a voluntary patient the, the options reduce again and so how do you keep a how do you keep those choices available that as you get enter the system how do how how are those alternative options opened up as you go down into the healthcare system is one thing two is is the resources available the sheer resources available to mainstream some of those things is just not there yet so peer to peer support is a great idea and i know national minded doing fantastic work around that but but sometimes it feels like against the tide um, there may be people who disagree with that, by the way. There may be people who are much more optimistic than me. I'm, I'm talking from my own experiences and the knowledge and awareness of those health professionals I've met on my own journey rather than my sort of political awareness that I see these things um, professionally. Um, so I think there are green shoots of hope, but on the whole, I think what we've got here perhaps is um, one huge corporate beast um, hoovering people slightly towards another huge corporate beast of Big Pharma. Thank you. Um, uh, I mean, Google maintains that this is really all about education and awareness. That's that's their stance. Um, do, do you, I mean, do you think do you see that there's any value in Google spreading awareness and education in this way? in general about mental ill health and and making resources available to people yeah, is there is there a stigma reducing aspect to it and well i, I think i think there is and i, I don't you know I, i'm probably not when i first looked at it i thought you know, maybe i've got to a, a, an age where i see everything as a, a blessing and a curse and a sort of double-edged sword i, I don't i don't see anything hugely wrong with that stance and I, I, I've, I've lived long enough to realize it's usually these aren't conspiracies although I'm sure there are vested interests who love the data and again that's the information governance and I'm sure there's a corporate power thing here I'm sure there's you know I'm not naive I think there is nothing wrong in raising awareness I think the assumptions behind it though are questionable in in terms of um, 
the assumption being behind a lot of anti-stigma campaigns is the belief that there is a lot of quote untreated depression in the community and while that may be true what you're doing by raising awareness in this way with this sort of tool is effectively I think narrowing the options rather than um, enabling people to go from this tool to finding peer-to-peer support or finding somebody who can help me walk the dog or take me to go swimming or a back-to-work scheme. Inevitably, in assuming that it's about access to effective treatments, you're already reframing things as illness. You're already reframing things as a, with biomedical causes. You're already channeling people. You're already using the language that takes people down a particular route. So, so my sense is that Google is making some assumptions about um, raising awareness, patient autonomy, independent voice, and all that, and that people who might be averse to that feel it might be a bit of a risky tool to use, and maybe they're more interested in patient safety and protecting patients. And I think what you've got in healthcare systems, and this is a latest manifestation, is of powerful interests speaking on behalf of patients, people making assumptions on behalf of patients, and very well-intentioned, but pretty paternalistic. And so by having patients, people who know about this stuff, having the opportunities to work as equal partners, we, we could do something quite different. And maybe if that happens, then we'd have online tools which would be able to ask the right questions, put them in context, give people a score if they want them, and whatever happens, signpost them to the right peer support or to the doctor, whichever way they want to go, really, uh, a connected online set of tools and communities and resources. But that's only going to happen if uh, people like me are given the power and the influence to be true partners. That was David Gilbert giving the perspective of a mental health service user on Google's initiative to offer a screening test for depression. The head-to-head debate, authored by Ken Duckworth and Simon Gilbody, and the commentary by David Gilbert, are available online on thebmj.com. As ever, we'd be delighted to know what you think, so please send us a rapid response. We republish the best as formal letters to the editor. I'll be back with more debates in the future, so subscribe to us so you don't miss out. We're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening.